would turn with me to the book of Amos. The book of Amos is where we'll be uh, this afternoon. It's wonderful to be with everyone today. It's always a joy to gather in the Lord's name and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I'm confident that He's been magnified and glorified and pleased with what we've done here uh, today, and I hope that that can continue in this second lesson of our worship. The book of Amos is where we'll be this afternoon. We're very familiar, I think, with the history of the children of Israel. From the very beginning, when the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt and gave them the law, throughout that entirety was given conditions on the blessings of God. And nothing that God grants us ultimately is unconditional, save a very few amount of things, and those go along with the eternal plans of God that none can overthrow and that we could not mess up ourselves. Yet, all the blessings that we've been given by God, everything that we've had enjoyed today, and then little things throughout life, often carry with them conditions. God has promised us immense blessings, but we must meet His conditions, especially the spiritual blessings come with the conditions God has placed upon us. And we see that as a pattern from the very beginning of the children of Israel. God set before their faces blessing and cursing. If you want these blessings, you need to serve me. A covenant goes both ways. God is going to keep up His end of the deal, but you have to keep up your end of the deal, Israelites, in order to receive the blessings that I promised you. And if you fail, then those cursings will come upon you. And so the history progresses, as we're familiar with again, and the Israelites fall away. They very quickly do so. From their very beginning as a nation, their ways are rife with disobedience, rebellion, idolatry, the worst forms of immorality. While not all of them were unfaithful at every single time, there's always been a remnant. There always will be a remnant even to today in the spiritual Israel of God. Their majority were unfaithful to God. So we reach a point in their history where the one nation is divided into two as a result of rebellion, of insubordination, of defiance toward God. Yet even then, God promised the northern nation of Israel as well as the southern nation of Judah that if you keep my covenant, if Jeroboam and Rehoboam serve me faithfully and lead the people faithfully, then he will continue to bless those two nations. Very quickly, the northern nation of Israel went into idolatry and set themselves up for captivity. Judah would eventually do the same some years later. The book of Amos is regarding an individual who was from Judah who God called to be a prophet. He makes very clear later on in the book that he did not call himself to be a prophet when Amaziah told him to no longer speak the word of the Lord. He basically said, you really think that I chose this life myself? I was a sheep breeder. I can't help but do what God is telling me to do. And so God sent him from Judah to Israel to prophesy judgment on the nation. Amos is very much a negative book in regard to the doom that will be visited upon nations surrounding Israel as well as Israel and even Judah is mentioned in the first chapter 
as being a subject of divine wrath in the future. They were unfaithful to God, even though they were God's special people. Amos points this much out in chapter 3 and verse 2. You only have I known, the Lord says, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. In chapter 1, six heathen nations are mentioned regarding them being subject to God's wrath. And it's interesting to see that the seventh nation mentioned is no heathen nation, but it's Israel, and or rather Judah, and then Israel in verse 6 of chapter 2 is mentioned. And so we should take that to heart that even though we're not a denomination, we are members of the one true church of God, the one body of Christ. We are not exempt from divine judgment. We need to realize that that we have not escaped the wrath of God outright just yet. We will if we're faithful to Him. By the blood of Jesus in the end, we won't be recipients of God's wrath. But indeed, if we fail to keep up our end of the bargain, so to speak, He will visit us with judgment, just like He did with Israel and with Judah. In Amos, the sixth chapter in verse 14, Amos prophesied concerning that judgment, "...but behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. We know that nation, as we have history realized, to be the Assyrian nation. Israel would be taken into Assyrian captivity, and Judah later into Babylonian captivity, never to return to their true and full glory they had in the early beginnings of that great nation. But you know, in Amos there's something I would suggest to you even more terrible than being led away into Assyrian captivity. It goes along with it, but it's certainly troubling to read verses 11 through 14 of Amos chapter 8. But before we read those verses, notice the calamity that is spoken of and the negative language of judgment in verses 9 and 10. This is what they'd experience before something even greater. It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. That's bad enough to me. But I want us to notice what he continues to say in verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. They had gotten to this point ultimately because of their idolatry and spiritual adultery, therefore. But I want us to notice that this divine judgment would come upon them and they would be led into captivity. Terrible things would happen to them, which is why the prophet describes in such vivid language depictions of judgment in verses 9 and 10, and of anguish and of sorrow. And when that anguish and sorrow come, they will naturally crave the Word of God. I want to know what Jehovah is going to do for us, to to deliver us, to bring us out of this calamity. I want us 
to hear the words of God so that we can be comforted, so that we can have some kind of hope. And he said, you will crave it, but it will not be there. Out of all the famine in the world that we could ever experience, this would be the worst, and Israel would be going through it. Even the young men and the fair young virgins, those who are strong and have the vitality of youth, they're going to faint. They're going to fail because God's Word just won't be there. You can search far and wide, from east to west, north and south, from sea to sea, and you will not find the Word of God. He will not speak with you anymore because you've rejected Him. In chapter 8, beginning, he sees a vision of a basket of summer fruit. And so he said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Essentially saying, you're ripe for judgment. You've done enough, and now judgment is going to come. There's no changing it anymore. You can seek God. You can pray for His Word. You can seek a prophet. You will not be able to find the Word of God, the revelation of the divine Creator anymore. And they brought this on themselves. I appreciate so much Brother Billy's lesson on the inspiration of Scripture. Such a vital topic to understand because if Scripture is not wholly inspired of God, then what are we even doing? The Word of God is of value because it is the Word of God. Our Bibles are pages which contain eternal truths given straight to us by God. And it's a wonderful thing. How terrible then would it be if we lost it? That's what happened to the nation of Israel. And they brought it on themselves. I want to ask you a profound question, at least in my mind. Could this happen to us today? I'm not talking about us being in the age of miracles with new revelation coming in from God each and every day by prophets and seers and so on and so forth and apostles. That's not what I'm talking about. With Israel, they may have just ceased to receive revelations from prophets, but we have the full revelation of God. Jude 3 says it's been once for all delivered to the saints. So I ask you again, could this happen to us today? And I would assert to you it could. I want to suggest to you that we may undergo a famine of God's Word if we're not careful to avoid committing the same mistakes that the children of Israel committed, enumerated by Amos in his prophetic writing. We need to make sure that we are not barring out the Word of God from our eyes and our hearts by committing these abominations before the Lord. We need to cut off those problems before it's too late. Well, let me suggest to you, first of all, of several problems that the reason why they went from having God's Word in abundant supply to none of God's Word at all was because their minds were focused on material things. The prophet says so much essentially throughout this text, but in Amos 3 and verse 15, I want us to notice what he says Concerning their luxuries, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Now, it's not wrong to own more than one house, to have a vacation house. That's essentially what he's talking about here. It's not a sin to be rich, to have wealth and to be able to buy these extra things. The problem Amos is highlighting is that at the apex of Israel's existence, when things were the best, at least economically, They had lost focus on God. 
that they were focused on God and they were enjoying their time in their winter house. And then when summer came, they enjoyed their time in their summer house. It wouldn't matter that they had two houses. The problem was that was their focus, their material wealth. And since they had a focus on that, they neglected their focus on God. And Amos said, you're going to be judged because of that. He enumerates more in chapter 6. In verse 1, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. They were complacent. And he tells us why. You're at ease in Zion, and you trust in Mount Sinaria, the notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calna and see, and from there and go to Hamath the Great. Go down to the Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your kingdom? Notice, Woe to you who put off, put far off the day of doom, who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. All of that is basically just describing their affluent and luxurious lifestyle they had grown accustomed to. And all of that wealth, all of that physical prosperity led to a complacency where notice in verse 3, they put off the day of doom and caused the seed of violence to come near. You know, there's a lot of people who think the day of judgment is so far away, I have time to enjoy what I love in this life. And I can devote myself fully to God a little bit later on. That's what they were doing. And then they saw the end. It was too late. The writing was on the wall, so to speak, as we learned from Daniel. And judgment was coming. The Lord has spoken. The Lord will not relent. We need to realize that there are more important things in this life than what we can just see. And if we don't come to that realization eventually we'll have a craving that we might not even know what it's for. And we won't be able to soothe that craving because the Word of God will be lost. We'll find ourselves in a spiritual famine. For example, in Matthew, the 13th chapter, in the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks of the thorny soil as this. He received the seed among the thorns as he who hears the Word and the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and he becomes unfruitful. Before we write this off and think that we're not materialistic, I want us to consider the fact that Jesus pointed out two sides to materialism here, both of which will bring us into a spiritual famine if we're not careful. First, He notes what most of us might struggle with here today, and that's anxiety. He says the cares of this world choked out the Word. He then speaks about the deceitfulness of riches, most of which we aren't inclined to be subject to like a lot of the world is. But I want to suggest to you that even the anxiety that overwhelms us about our finances, the bills that have to be paid, all of that kind of stuff, if we are overwhelmed with that anxiety, that's what's going to choke out the Word of God. That's materialism. This is what Jesus addressed in Matthew chapter 6 when he speaks about not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he goes on down in that text, remember, to talk about how we need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's simply talking about the necessities. 
These things are what we put on and the things we eat, the things that we need. After these things, the Gentiles seek, he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. They're not sinful things. They're not optional things. They're necessities. And Lord knows that sometimes we are in dire straits and even the necessities are far from our reach. And He tells us, don't give yourself a pass and think that worrying is okay. Being stressed and anxious about this is okay just for a little while because you've been serving the Lord and you know that you're in hard times. He says, don't worry. It would be a sin for you to be overwhelmed with worry. Because in verse 33, it gives us the key why. Because that would lead to not seeking first, prioritizing the kingdom of God. So you do that, and then all of this will take care of itself. Before he gets to that familiar passage, he notes how this will cause us to lose our focus. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you're laying up physical treasure, your mind isn't going to be on heaven He says the lamp of the body is the eye, and if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if your light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's essentially saying you can't have double vision. You can't have a dark eye and a light eye because you'll be corrupted with the darkness. You've got to be singly focused on God. And then he breaks it down very simply. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or be loyal to the one and despise the other. Materialism will take the Word of God away from us. We've got to be careful about that. Do we really trust in God? Are we really focused on Him? Are we trying to take things into our own hands and and take care of things and therefore lose time to give to God, lose focus on the spiritual? If we're not careful, we'll fail to see the truth of God. We'll neglect eternal principles and we will regret it. But also in Matthew 13 and verse 22, he talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Remember the rich fool of Luke chapter 12 and verses 13 through 15. When a man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And that's when he speaks that parable we're all very familiar with, where this man's Uh, his crops, they were plentiful and he needed to tear down his old barns and and build new big barns so that he could have enough room to store his crops. And then he, he was satisfied. I have the future laid up for me. That night his soul was required of him. We need to not get in the rat race and forget about the spiritual treasure we're to accumulate. In John the sixth chapter, Jesus had a personal encounter again that shows us how materialism can bring us into a spiritual famine of God's Word if we're not careful. Yes, God's Word is here, but if we're too focused on the material, then we're not even going to be able to see the significance of it. Remember the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus graciously performed in John chapter 6. But it wasn't for their physical sustenance. It was for their spiritual sustenance, for something to click in their minds about Him. They sought Him for the bread and fish. And you notice in John 6 and verse 26, Jesus calls them on it. Most assuredly, I say to you, seek Me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. You know, that's essentially the problem with the gospel of health and wealth. They seek bread and fish, so to speak, and not the Word of God. 
they fail to see the significance of all the things Jesus spoke and did within the pages of the New Testament. They fail to see the power of the Gospel to save us from our sins, not from poverty and physical ailment. But before we get to the point where we think, yeah, that's bad and I would never be guilty of that, let's think for a minute about how that might apply to us. Do we ever read into Scripture things we would like to see to justify us for neglecting the assembly to take an extra shift at work when we know we didn't have to? When a gospel meeting is scheduled and we're set to have a week full of deep study and spiritual nutrition from God's Word, and we know that well ahead of time and we make no efforts to schedule our schedule around the gospel meeting, I want to tell you it's the same thing. We start seeking bread and fish. We'll look into the Word of God and we'll talk about how, you know, the ox is in the ditch and we use that excuse far too often and we read into God's Word what we want to see to justify our materialistic mind. May it not be so. We need to be careful. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 demonstrates another form of materialism barring out the Word of God when they were divided amongst themselves saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. In chapter 3, he calls them carnal men. And he explains, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. Now this is a different form. It's not materialism. It's carnality, but it's similar. It's within the same category. They were not able to consume and digest God's Word because they were thinking like mere men, he says. Mere men only think about the physical. Mere men only think about their bank account. Mere men only think about their next meal. Mere men only think about entertainment. But sons of God, and we can rightly be called the children of God, as Billy pointed out, as Jesus pointed out in John 10, they think about their eternal city God has prepared for them. Let's make sure that we don't make that same mistake as Israel Along those same lines, Israelites were kept from the Word of God because of their fondness of sin. In Amos, the second chapter, and in verses 6-8, through the Word of God says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn away from its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pan after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. It essentially describes a gross, immoral people that loved their immoral practices. And it wasn't that their worship and devotion to God, at least in semblance, was non-existent. It seemed that they were religious. It seemed that they were following God to a degree. But they were so fond of what was unrighteous it led to a spiritual famine. Notice especially in verse 7, the striking phrase, they pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. They're involved in the humiliation and oppression of the poor instead of helping them to the extent that they pant after trampling on their heads. They pant after that immorality. They cannot wait to get to the point, to the time of day, when they can perform some more sinful activities. Notice the extent of this in chapter 8 of Amos. In verse 5 he says, They say, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat? 
making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The new moon and the Sabbath we know to be those days of worship and dedication and devotion to God. And essentially what the Israelites were doing is they were saying, we can't do our unrighteous activities on this day because it's a day of worship. I can't wait for this day of worship to be over with so I can resume my injustice. So I can resume my lies and deceit. Selling the bad wheat while I know I have good wheat there to sell to these people. They couldn't wait to get back to their unlawfulness. It's sad that some Christians are even like this. They come to worship because they have to, not because they want to. And while they're sitting in the pulpits, or in the pews rather, they cannot wait until church to be over, is over so that they can go back home and watch their immorality on the TV or go back to the world with their friends and places they ought not to be and doing things they ought not to do. That's exactly what led to a spiritual famine of the Israelites. James chapter 4 and verse 4 warns of this when he says friendship with the world is enmity with God. He calls them adulteresses and adulterers. But he forms it in a question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? They didn't realize they were far from God. They thought they were still friends of God. But because they were fond of their sinfulness, those things that they knew were wrong and probably made something happen in their minds to justify their practices, James points out, you couldn't be further apart from God. You're God's enemy now. You are not His ally any longer. And it's because of your fondness of the world. I think this is why James says in his first chapter of his epistle in verse 21, lay aside the filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word of God can only save our souls if we're willing to part from the sin. We know it's revealed in our lives. Otherwise, we're going to start compromising with the truth. We're going to start reading into the Bible what we want to see, which is why I think the Apostle Paul told Timothy to have faith in a good conscience. And notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, Some of them have rejected faith in a good conscience, and concerning the faith, that is the gospel, the object of faith, they've suffered shipwreck. He names them Hymenaeus and Alexander. We need to have faith which comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We only want to know and do what God's Word says, and we've got to maintain a pure conscience in order to be consistent in that. When there is a defiled conscience, that means we have sinned. Even if it is not a sinful practice, if we've hurt our conscience, done something we did not have the ability to do in good conscience, we've sinned. And now our conscience being defiled, the Word of God is in jeopardy. It is in danger of being interpreted in a way that is not accurate, that suits where we are, that soothes our conscience. And what really happens is our conscience is seared. If we can't part with those things we used to love, then we will never know who God truly is. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in verse 12, they will be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 10 says they didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. We've got to love truth, not sin or else we'll never come to know truth. Another thing that the Israelites were guilty of that led to a spiritual famine is that their worship they offered to God was perverted. In chapter 4 of Amos, in verses 4 and 5, 
He says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Bethel and Gilgal are both places associated with idolatry. And it's not that Amos is encouraging them to continue in their idolatrous practices. It's a form of irony, if you will. He's trying to jolt them to real life. You keep doing what you're doing, and there is the implied, and see what happens. I think that's a tactic some parents like to, to give. You know, keep doing it. Go ahead, touch that when I told you not to. See what happens. And it's not an encouragement to actually do it. It's to, to get them to think about What's going to happen if they do this? There's the flip side of things in chapter 5 when he says this. He says in chapter 5 of Amos, the city that goes by, or rather in verse 4, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with which with no one with no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Do it. No, don't do it. You see the point he's making? Trust in the Lord. Seek the Lord. And the way that we do that is only giving Him what He requires in worship. You notice in chapter 5 as well, in verse 21, he elaborates on this. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not save your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And in verses 25 through 27, he essentially talks about how they had been guilty of idolatry from their very beginning in the wilderness wanderings. And this is something Stephen quoted in Acts the seventh chapter to show the pattern of people of God rejecting him and that those people were the exact same. And that's when they killed him. I want us to notice he speaks about their feast days and their offerings and their songs with stringed instruments. He doesn't say anything about they're doing it in the wrong way in form. He's not saying instrumental music was unauthorized because we know it was authorized in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not under that law anymore. His problem was with their unrighteousness perverting their worship. So I'm going to tell you, we may have the form right. We may have all the acts of worship right. We may have the day right. We may have the pattern right. But we can pervert our worship with our mind being elsewhere, with hypocrisy as the Israelites did. And if perverted worship is what we're guilty of, we won't be able to discern the truth of God's Word. In John 4 and verse 24, Jesus said, Worship must be in spirit and in truth because God who is spirit commands such. In Matthew the 15th chapter in verse 3 he noted the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees and how they had superseded and eclipsed the commandment of God. And so they transgressed the commandment of God because of their traditions. And he describes them with a quotation from Isaiah in verse 8, calling them hypocrites first. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Our hearts could be far from God, not simply because we're committing an abomination before Him by conflating human tradition with divine decree. 
Our hearts could be far from God in worship simply by not being invested in it in our spirits. Spirit and truth, not just truth. Spirit and truth, not just spirit. And if we pervert worship, then we will lose all sense of spiritual evaluation and judgment. And we will start doing things that would have been unheard of before. I want to tell you that those in the denominations who will suggest to you that we don't have to follow the pattern completely, we can worship God how we want, and we can still be holy, they're fooling themselves and they're trying to fool you. Because if we're not willing to submit to God's will in the most sacred assembly before Him to worship, what makes us think we'll submit to His will when we leave and live our own lives? When there is perverted worship, whether in form or just in spirit, there will be a perverted life contrary to God's will. I think this is abundantly clear with the example of the Israelites Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, an example he gives so that we might not follow them. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And he goes on to continue about their temptation of God and their rebellion against God. I want us to notice that phrase that he quotes from Exodus at the scene of Sinai, that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's a reason why in verse 8 he mentions sexual immorality. Sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play is essentially a euphemism for sexual immorality. It is very clear historically and biblically that idolatry involved sexual immorality. They committed sexual immorality with even prostitutes that were supposed to be prophetesses of that God as a form of worship. Because when man makes the God, man makes the worship, and man is going to make the worship what is most pleasurable to him, not to a God that truly exists. And so this corrupted form of worship at Mount Sinai, where they called the God that was not a God at all, but the molded calf, the God that led them out of Egypt, They thought they were worshiping Jehovah, but they weren't worshiping Him in the way that He required, and therefore they were led into even greater immorality. Most basic forms of sin were committed. Why? Because the Word of God wasn't on their mind. They had barred it out from their lives. The same can happen to us if we're not careful. Make sure our minds are prepared when we come to worship and that we're singly focused on the truth of God. Also, Amos records that they forsook justice and righteousness, which obviously would lead to a spiritual famine. In Amos chapter 5 and in verse 7, he says, You turn justice into wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. And so they make something that should be sweet and wonderful into something bitter. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is like honey in the honeycomb. We should desire it as such. They turn justice into something bitter, wormwood, and they lay righteousness towards so as to trample it underfoot. It's nothing to them. Verse 10 continues. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. And so in the place of judgment and the place of law and order, they hated the one who rebuked those who were not fulfilling the Word of God and those who spoke what is true, they hated them. They reveled in unrighteous speech and lawlessness. They forsook justice and righteousness. They didn't want to be right with God. When wrong was committed, they didn't want to rectify it. 
They had pleasure in unrighteousness, as 2 Thessalonians said. And when you ignore God's Word to be able to have that mindset, no doubt even further ignorance of God's Word that is willful will come along. That is a famine of the Word of God. We can't think that a sin that goes unchecked, unaddressed, even unnoticed in a willful ignorance is going to amount to nothing. We'll not be able to see the Word of God clearly at all. He says something similarly in chapter 6 of Amos and verse 12, but says this first, Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned righteousness into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Horses running on rocks will hurt the animal. Plowing on rocks with oxen will hurt the animal. That's what he's saying. You can't do that and expect your animal to be sound in flesh. Yet you are turning righteousness into and justice into wormwood and trampling underfoot that righteousness, laying it on the ground. As he said before, you're doing something that will reap terrible consequences. You can't expect to avoid those consequences. There can be a famine of the Word of God if justice and righteousness is forsaken. We need to realize that the Word of God is meant to uphold to reveal what is right and just, and to uphold justice and righteousness. But it can't do it simply by itself. Not because it's impotent, but because God created it and revealed it to be carried out in the hearts of men and women like us. It does nothing sitting on a table. It does everything God intended it to when an honest heart reads it, accepts it, and practices what is preached in its divine pages. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. You don't just get the teaching, you get the reproof when there is wrong. And you don't just get the reproof, you get the correction when there is wrong. And you don't just get sin on your way, but you have further instruction in righteousness. What happens if we don't like reproof and rebuke and correction, which is all uncomfortable? Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy goes on to say that these people, they won't endure sound doctrine. You need to preach the Word. They don't want to hear it though. They'll heap up for themselves teachers and be turned aside to fables. That's what's at stake. They had a spiritual famine because they decided they didn't want true justice and righteousness. In 1 Timothy, Timothy is told to charge some to preach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables, but preach the law and do it lawfully because it's not made for a righteous person, but he lists sins. It's made to check us and correct us because we're fallible men, but it is infallible in its nature. And so when there is instruction, but there is a deviation from that instruction by an individual or a group or whatever it may be and in whatever way it is, justice must be upheld. Righteousness must be the focus. Notice what will happen if that does not occur. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul points this out. The church in Corinth had neglected, just like Israel of old, righteousness and justice when there was a man among them who had his father's wife. And he says in verse 2, You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You are neglecting justice. There is sin in the camp and you're ignoring it because you think you're above it. Notice what happens when he goes on in verse 6 to describe. He uses some very interesting and powerful language. He says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Sin was in their midst, so they were leavened. And he uses Christ and he calls them our Passover. We know that the Passover had to be kept, not just with the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts, for the, 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 the judgment to pass over them and the firstborn to live, but to the very letter of what God required, it had to happen. They had to respect the law of God. They had to do what He said. Leaven could not be in the house. And you know what would happen if leaven was in the house? Even if the blood of that lamb was on the doorpost, the firstborn would have died because they didn't follow the law of the Lord. Now he's likening that to a church who's caring about the work of the Lord, who's who's worshiping in in true form. He he hasn't addressed in this text, you're, you're worshiping with stringed instruments and that's not authorized in the New Testament. None of that. They're just worshiping God. They're gathering, they're assembling, they're carrying on the work of the Lord, but they're ignoring sin. And he's saying that's no more effective than the house of one who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, but there was leaven in the house. Sin has to be dealt with. Justice and righteousness must be upheld. And he goes on to say, keep it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In that congregation, there was not truth because they were not dealing with sin. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, he talks about how the unruly need to be warned. And then he goes on to say, don't quench the spirit or despise prophecies. That is, don't quench the word of God. Don't despise the word of God. As we just listened to Billy uh, preaching his lesson, the, the Spirit-inspired word, prophecy, which comes from God, not man. If you don't warn the unruly and then correct those who fail to correct themselves, you bar out the Word of God. And lastly, but not least, very obvious, a distaste for truth will lead to a spiritual famine. In Amos chapter 2 and verse 11, Amos says, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites, is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. These men who had taken a vow to be holy and to lead spiritually in the nation of Israel, and these men that God appointed to give the Word of God to them, their blessings from God, and you caused them to transgress their appointment. You didn't want to hear what they had to say. You just had a distaste for truth. In Amos chapter 7, one of several visions that is seen by Amos is that of a plumb line where the Lord set a plumb line in the midst of His people. A plumb line being a a weighted string that shows what true verticality is. He set it in the midst of Israel and what it's saying is that there was a standard that was set. This is what straight looks like and you have deviated from it. You have not loved the standard. You have not loved the truth. And that's demonstrated further when what I alluded to earlier, Amaziah told Amos, don't prophesy here anymore. He said, I can't help it. God appointed me. If we just don't love the truth, if we don't like to hear what the Word of God says, good, bad, and ugly, then we will not understand one tad bit of God's Word. This is what ultimately happened to the children of God as recorded in 2 Chronicles 36.15. The Lord God said to their fathers, uh, of their fathers, sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of God uh, of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. Hosea 4 and verse 6 talks about how they were destroyed for a lack of knowledge, but I want to impress you with the fact that it says they had rejected knowledge. It wasn't just ignorance that was innocent in regard to the 
coming about of that ignorance, like they just didn't know. They rejected knowledge. They didn't want to know. In chapter 1 of Romans, in verses 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want the truth. They suppress it. They hold it down. And notice the outcome in verse 28. Similarly to the perverted worship of the Israelites, how it rolled down the the hill like a snowball picking up momentum. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which uh, which are not fitting. They did not want the truth. They wanted unrighteousness, and that's what they got. They couldn't even think of an existence of God at that point. They had completely perverted their thoughts. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus spoke about why He speaks in parables. So that hearing they may hear and not understand, seeing they may see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. In other words, you can read the Bible, the holy truth, infallible in its nature, complete in its content, and come away with something totally opposite of what God wills it if you just don't have the pre- disposition of loving the truth. We need to make sure we check ourselves daily to make sure our hearts are honest, that we do love truth and despise sin and error, lest we put blinders on our own bodies and fail to see the will of God. Hope this lesson this afternoon was beneficial to you. Hope that it comes as a healthy reminder and warning for each and every one of us and for us as a whole as we seek to do the will of God knowing that we have the will of God fully revealed to us. But even though the Bible, the will of God, the mind of God is fully revealed, we could be as blind to it as if it didn't even exist if we're not careful. Just like the Israelites brought a spiritual famine in their time, we could bring a spiritual famine in ours. I want to offer an invitation this afternoon to anyone who has not obeyed the gospel. We want you to have the opportunity, so we extend it to you, to be baptized for the remission of your sins before it's everlastingly too late. If you have obeyed the gospel, but there's some other thing that you need that we can assist you with in a spiritual way, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.